Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20 this morning. Exodus chapter 20. We come to the record of the Ten Commandments. And I'd like to begin by saying that the Ten Commandments are not for Christians. We tend to think that the mark of a Christian is whether or not they obey the Ten Commandments or whether or not uh, our country, the measure of our country is whether or not we have the Ten Commandments written on a plaque in our schools. But the Ten Commandments are not for believers on this side of the cross. The Ten Commandments were written for Israel and they are a summary of the Law of Moses. Since the coming of Jesus, the law has been fulfilled in Him. He perfectly obeyed the law, including the Ten Commandments. And we are no longer under the law, including the Ten Commandments. One of the clear ways that we know that the Ten Commandments are not for us is because of the Fourth Commandment, which tells us, we'll we'll see it here in just a second, but it tells us to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. So let me ask you, How many of you did any needless labor on the last Sabbath day? How many of you traveled more than one mile on the last Sabbath day? How many of you earned an income on the last Sabbath day? If you did, then you broke one of the Ten Commandments. And I'll bet you didn't even care about it. By the way, when was the last Sabbath day? Yesterday. Right? We tend to... We, we tend to Christianize the Sabbath day. And we say, well, let's just move it over here to Sunday. We'll make that our Sabbath day. Now, we have all, all these rules, which actually we don't take all the rules that the Sabbath requires. We only take the ones we want. And we force it on people as if, uh, as if we're supposed to refrain from all needless labor, even though that command is not for us. The reason I know that that command is not for us is from Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Listen to this. Therefore, Paul says, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. No one is to act as your judge. Why? Because those things were a shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. So, If you put your stock in days, like special days of the year or even special days of the week, then you don't recognize what Christ came to do. Christians, you are not under the law. You are not obligated to obey the Sabbath law. You are not obligated to obey any part of the law of Moses because it's part of the law of Moses. Christ has redeemed you from that. So, the Ten Commandments are not for Christians. So what do we do with them? If they're not for us, and maybe you're not convinced that they're not for us, why even study them? Well, the law has a threefold purpose. I've heard a helpful explanation of this by a pastor named Lucas Counterman. He said the law has three purposes. First, the law is a map. It's a map. It points us to Christ. It shows us our need to have someone who takes the law, not just the Ten Commandments, but all the law, and, and to fulfill it perfectly. That's, that's the importance, one of the importances of the law. It, it points us to Christ. It shows us what God values very highly. Secondly, the law is a muzzle. 
the law is a muzzle. It keeps us from doing the worst kinds of sin. Aren't you thankful that we have the Old Testament law? Because many of these things actually help us to, 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 to move into the worst kinds of sin. We'll talk about how they're important for us here in just a second. Thirdly, the law is a mirror. It's a mirror. It reveals to us that we are sinners. This is the primary purpose, I believe, of the law. It actually shows us that we can't come to God on our own. No one can obey the law perfectly. He used the example, uh, Pastor Counterman used the example of a window. You know, we tend to think, well, you know, if I, if I just miss in one point, I mean, I got the main thing. But, but think about it in terms of a window. If you break one part of the window, how good is that window now? Right? You've broken the whole window. You don't go to your parents after breaking their window and say, I'm really sorry I broke the edge of the window. Right? No, you broke the window. And, and the same thing is true about the law, right? James 2.10. If any man keeps the entire law and yet fails, offends in one point, he's guilty of breaking the whole law. He's guilty of breaking the whole window. And so the Ten Commandments were not written for Christians, but they are extremely important for Christians. They're extremely practical for us. And the reason why you're starting to think through the line, wait, how are these not for Christians? Nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament. Here's why nine of those commandments are important for you. Because they're repeated in the New Testament. That's your law. So when I said that you are not under law, what I meant was not that you're not under any law, right? We're under the new law. We're under... The, the, the law of Christ. We are not without law. And so we have all sorts of commands in the New Testament that we have a responsibility to obey. Is that true? Yes. Okay. Some of those happen to be the same as the Old Testament law. Here's the way that we tend to think of how our law, the New Testament law, comes. We think the Old Testament law is out here and it was established... It came from God, rightfully so. We have the Ten Commandments, for example. And now derived out of those comes our law, the new law. So instead of do not murder, don't even hate your brother. Okay, Do not commit adultery, don't even lust after a woman. Remember Jesus, Matthew 5, that's where I'm drawing that from. So we think that the new law is derived from the old law. That's not true. Here's how it works. God has a desire for for what is most important. And so he's expressed those desires in laws. One of the ways that he's done that is through the Old Testament law. Think of the Ten Commandments. Okay, Here's an expression of what God desires to be done. You know what another expression of that is? The New Testament law. And amazingly, some of these things correspond to these things over here. So instead of thinking of it as two circles, Old Testament law, New Testament law, and an arrow going from one to the other, Think of it as God's overarching law and His expression of it for the Old Testament saints, the Ten Commandments. Do you see? And God's expression of His desire for the New Testament saints, the law of Christ. Do you see? See, that's why these laws are not important for us because they're from the Ten Commandments, because they're from the Old Testament. They're important because we see expressions of those same laws from God in the New Testament. Does that make sense? Alright, so now, 
Now that I started out with, they're not important, or they're not for Christians. You're thinking they're not important. They're, they are important, and we're going to to look at each of them, and they they tell us a lot about God and what He desires. So let's uh, read our passage this morning, Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse one. This is the word of God. Then God spoke all these words, saying. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, your cattle, your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of Him may remain with you so that you may not sin. So the people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. Worship of God is fundamentally about obedience to His commands. You want to know what true worship is? It is tied very closely to obeying what He has said to do. And that's what these... That, that's why these commandments are so helpful for us. Because it shows us what true worship of God is. Remember, what's been going on in this, in, in this passage, right? God has been leading them all along. I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to deliver you. Why? So that you will worship me. You know how you're going to worship me? You're, I'm going to give you the law and you're going to start obeying it. Friends, worship is about obedience to God. Doing it His way. As part of the Ten Commandments, God includes a motivation for the people to obey. As we see in verse 2, He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And this teaches us that God is motivating us to obey through His previous works. This is how God motivates us. Why should we obey God? Why can God tell us what to do? I think God would answer by saying, I created you. I own you. I redeemed you. Right? I bought you out of slavery. 
But why should you obey me? Because I've done all those things for you. And that's exactly what we saw last week in chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, and, chap- and we see it here in chapter 20, verse 5. Right? Because God has done all these things, we should be motivated to obey Him. So here, here's a, just a brief application. If you struggle to obey God, one of the best ways to be motivated to obey Him is to reflect on what He has done for you. Okay? Read and meditate on the book of Romans. Romans 12, verse 1, as was so helpfully explained by Dr. Dawson on a Wednesday night earlier this summer, is, is a command. And it's really the first main command of the book of Romans. Paul doesn't start that way. In fact, in most of his letters, he doesn't start that way by saying, do this, do this. No, don't do that. No, he doesn't do that. You know what he starts with? The mercies of God. Romans 1 through 11. You know what Romans 1 through 11 is about? Our former condition, what Christ did, what our sin meant to God, how, God, how Christ paid for our sins, who we now are in Christ. No, we have no longer any condemnation, right? We have peace with God. So if you struggle on obeying Romans 12:1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, on the mercy, by the mercies of God, that you offer your body as a living sacrifice. If you have trouble obeying God, you need to reflect on why you should obey God. Romans 1 through 11. I do, you can look at the, any of Paul's epistles and see that same sort of structure. Ephesians 1 through 3, talk about what God has done through Christ. Ephesians 4 through 6, a bunch of commands, what we should do. Friends, the motivation for us to obey is God's previous work. As long as we reflect on what God has done for us, then we will be happy to obey. We will be happy to give to God. We will be happy to serve God. So we worship God by obeying His commands. Now the the Ten Commandments can be helpfully separated into two parts. The first four are commands that pertain to our relationship with whom? Our relationship with God. Okay, And the last six commands pertain to our relationship with other people. Right? So we could summarize it by the way Jesus summarized it. The first and greatest commandment is love the Lord your God. Commandments 1 through 4. The second is like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Commandments 5 through 10. Do you see? This is how we can separate the Ten Commandments. And, and basically those are both an expression of God and what He expects of us, which is to love Him. Love God. So love God by loving me and love God by loving your neighbor. That's the Ten Commandments in summary. Okay, the rest is just icing on the cake. So if you just learned that today, that's great. Love God by loving God and love God by loving your neighbor. Commandment number one. We must serve the true God exclusively. We must serve the true God exclusively. Verse 3. God says, You shall have no other gods before Me. Now when we read this command, it, counts, it kind of sounds like God is okay with us having other gods, as long as they're not before Him in the list. So if we had a bunch of lists of gods, if God's at the top, He's okay with you having all those other gods. That's not the intention of what God is saying. The, the phrase before me literally reads, before my face. Before my face. You don't have any other gods before my face, which is a Hebrew idiom for saying against me. Or in God's case, don't let me see any other gods in your life. 
what is it that God sees? Let, let me say it a different way. What is it that God doesn't see? Right? God sees everything. So don't have any other gods before my face. I don't want to see them. And since I see all, don't have any other gods. That's the point of it. And that is the first and foundational commandment. If we're going to love God, we need to recognize that He demands and desires to be loved exclusively. That we should have no other gods besides Him. Number two, we must serve the true God in the right way. So we must serve the true God exclusively is the first command. And secondly, we must serve the true God in the right way. It's not enough to serve only the true God. God desires that He be served, that He be worshipped in the right way. And that's why He says, verse 4, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. So don't make any carved images. Don't make any molten images. That is, ones that have been poured, you know, liquid metals poured into a mold and then cast that way. Don't do this. Even if you're trying to serve me, by serving an idol. Okay, a lot of times idols are made and they're served they're serving other gods. But actually, can you think of an example from Israel's history when they tried to serve the true God but did it through an idol? What was it? The golden calf, right? Exodus chapter thirty two. They're trying to serve the right uh, uh in fact turn there. They're trying to serve the right God, but they do it in the wrong way. Exodus Exodus thirty two And if you look at Aaron and what he's saying here, it seems to me that he's trying to get the people to worship the true God, but he's doing it in the wrong way. Verse 2, 32-2, Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now, do you think they've already forgotten who brought them out of the land of Egypt? No. They think this is the true and living God in a form. This is a little bit easier, easy for, easier for us excuse me, to, to see and to worship. So let's have, have it formed into a calf. And now we can think about the true God. But God will not be served in that way, even if you're only serving Him. Why is it that God is so, is so um, adamant about not being worshipped through a graven or a carved image? Jesus said in John 4.24 that God is spirit and we must worship Him in spirit and in truth. God is too big to be confined to a single object. He doesn't want us to think about Him as if He has been fashioned into something, right? How is it that all of these idols are made? Someone has to make them. Someone has to take some material and fashion Him. And so, God's saying, you can't do that with me. You can't fashion me into an image. You can't carry me around in your pocket. No single object does justice to the great majesty of God. 
And I think we recognize if we just think of some other examples from life. Perhaps you've been to the Grand Canyon. Before going, you'd seen pictures of the Grand Canyon, but never really were captivated by the Grand Canyon. I know for me, it was I haven't been to the Grand Canyon, but, but I've been to the Iguazu Falls in Brazil. And I can tell you that it was spectacular. And before going there, I had seen some pictures and a few videos, but it did not do justice to what the falls looked like and felt like and sounded like in person. Eleanor Roosevelt visited visited these same falls one time and she said, it makes the Niagara Falls look like a dripping faucet. And I would agree with her. Actually, I can't agree with her because I haven't seen the Niagara Falls. Okay, Just in pictures. But it was spectacular. Maybe for you as your firstborn child or your grandchild. And when they were born, you were captivated. You loved every second being around them, seeing them, the smells, the, some of the smells, and, and, the, and the looks that they would make, the little grimaces that they would have on their face. And you tried to explain this to someone else or show them a picture and they just, oh, that's nice. They don't get it because they haven't seen the baby. They don't know what kind of pain, right, or, or what kind of struggles the parents went through to get to this point. Sometimes the point is pictures don't do justice to the great beauty of a person or an object. And this second commandment is God saying, I, no one can do justice to who I am and what I mean. Within this command, we have both a negative and a positive motivation in verses 5 and 6. The negative motivation is God judges those who oppose Him. Notice verse 5. You shall not worship them, these idols, or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. Now, this sounds arbitrary. It sounds like God is just judging future generations for sins of their ancestors. And you might be thinking, well, maybe this is why I've gotten some of the bad circumstances in my life, because maybe it was my grandfather or great-grandfather and his sins are visiting me. But that's not what God is saying at all. Okay? It is true. It is true that, you know, we we bear the consequences in some form of our parents and grandparents' bad choices. Okay, that, that is true to a degree. But that's not what God is promising here. Notice the end of verse five again. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of what kind of children? What kind of generations? Those who hate me. In other words, he's not going to take the excuse from these third and fourth generations saying, well, you know, my parents did it. I couldn't help it. Or my grandparents, they were idol worshippers, so I had to. God's saying, I'm not going to accept that. If you hate me, you're going to be visited with my judgment. That's the point. That's the negative motivation. That God is not going to ignore the sins of the individuals who commit them. He's not going to ignore any who hate Him. Even to the third and fourth generations. Verse 6. Here's the positive motivation. Why we should not not, uh, worship idols. We should worship God in the right way instead. Verse 6. But showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love Me and keep My commandments. God is 
showing His mercy to those who love and obey Him. The thousands of generations that follow you will be treated with great love by God. God will show His loving kindness, His loyal love to them. We must serve God exclusively. We must serve God in the right way. Thirdly, third commandment, we must serve God reverently. Verse 7, we must serve God reverently. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. It's not enough to serve God exclusively. It's not enough to serve God in the right way. God also expects that we serve God as He wants to be worshipped. And in this case, He's saying that you should not use My name carelessly. Now, just to understand the context, we tend to immediately jump to the application. Okay, don't, don't, don't use God's name in vain. And we take that to mean, you know, don't, don't use God's name without meaning anything by it. But in their context, this was directly uh, directed primarily at those who would take an oath in God's name and then fail to follow through on that oath. It, they would basically demand God to act. I promise you that I will do this thing on the basis of God's name. And if I don't, may God bring punishment on me. That was the idea, the thing that God was, was moving them away from. And, and so that's the primary application for Israel. For us, we certainly should not do that. Make promises and enlist God's name as if He's going to... Uh, if we don't follow through on that, then we expect God to do something. And we've basically put God into a box and said, you have to respond this way. A proper implication for this, certainly for us, includes misusing God's name. Using God's name in a way that has no meaning. Right? I think we understand that that using things like when we're frustrated, oh my God. It's not wrong to say those three words, by the way. If you look through the Psalms, it's repeated often. Oh my God. It's, It's in a prayer there. That has meaning. But when someone is frustrated about something or confused or surprised, they respond with, oh my God, that is taking the Lord's name in vain. Perhaps, Lord, have mercy. Or God, damn you. Okay, Using God's name in a way that is doesn't have meaning. Okay? We, we, may, we might not mean. You, know, you tell somebody, don't. Don't say that about my God. And they say, well, I didn't mean anything by that. That's exactly the point. Don't use God's name in a way that you don't mean anything by it. So that's a proper, proper implication. And, and again, the negative motivation, a negative motivation or a motivation that comes across as negative is punishment. The Lord will not leave him unpunished, verse 7, who takes his name in vain. Okay, God takes his name very seriously. He protects his name. And he doesn't want people to just misuse it and just use it carelessly however they want. When they use it, use it carefully and, and with great meaning. That's why the Jews actually didn't even say the name of God. They changed, it to, they, they changed God's name to heaven or they just had four letters. Y-H-W, uh, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, is a shortened for Yahweh. But they, they just shortened it because they didn't want to ever get into the place where they misused, misused God's name. Instead of calling it the kingdom of God in the Gospel of Matthew, the Jews would call it the kingdom of heaven. Right? 
And, and they're just trying to protect themselves against this commandment. Number four, we must serve God dependently. Okay, so while this command is not for us, keeping the Sabbath day, uh, there is great uh, implications or great application for us. For Israel, they were to rest and focus on God every Saturday, every Sabbath day. And the idea was to refrain from needless labor. It didn't mean that people were supposed to, on the Sabbath, turn into a lazy blob, right? Because they still had to milk cows on Saturday, right? They still had to make meals for themselves. They still had to feed the animals. And guess who was working every Saturday? The priests in the tabernacle, right? So this was not from any labor. It was from needless labor. And the, the idea was that God was saying, I want you to rest. I want you to rest one day a week just like I did. did. Did God refrain from labor, by the way, on the seventh day? Did He do no labor at all? No, He still had to hold the world together. Okay, But, but He refrained apparently from needless labor in order to give us an example of what we should do one day a week. For Israel, this was the Sabbath day. And then the secondary purpose of it was to focus on God or maybe uh, a, a codependent purpose was to focus on God. The end of verse 8 uh, says, I'm sorry, that's not. yeah, keep it holy. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And then verse 10, the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. Okay, the idea was to focus on God. It required dependence on God because you had to take a whole day where you stopped working we like to work and, and keep our hands in things. and Especially some, some of us, we, we just like to always be busy because we have to have things moving like we want. And God's saying, one day, you just need to depend upon Me. And just, you, you're not doing anything in the farm. Okay? You're just going to depend on Me to give you what you need for the day. It's a focus on God. And the scope of this command was everyone. That's why the end of verse 10 lists all of these people. doesn't matter if you're a sojourner. doesn't matter if it's an animal. Okay, don't put them to work on, on this Saturday for them. And the basis of the command was God's example and God's consecration of the day in verse 11. So we must serve God dependently. These are the first four commandments that have to do with our relationship with God. Now we move to our relationship with other people. We'll move a little bit more quickly once we get to the next one, but um, once we get to number six. But number five, I'm going to take a little bit of time with because I think there's some good application here for the children in our congregation. Okay, so number five, we must serve God by respecting our parents. Verses 12, verse 12. We must serve God by respecting our parents. We now move from the commands that, re- that relate to our relationship with God. And these, by the way, still do relate to our relationship with God, but they're primarily about how we relate to God by showing love to other people. The command is pretty straightforward. Treat your parents with respect for as long as you live, even if they have died. Okay? I believe that we can actually honor our parents even after they're dead and gone. And we do that by obeying them when we're under their authority and by thinking and speaking well of them when we are out from underneath their authority, even after they have died. Thinking and speaking well of them. This is a command that God gives, and it's repeated in the New Testament, as we'll see here in just a second. I think we also honor them by carrying on their legacy after they have died. 
carry on their legacy, to, to continue to think and speak well of them. So now let me make some direct application to the children this morning. So let me ask those of you who are 18 years old and under to look at me right now. Okay? If you're 18 years old or under, look at me. One of the great gifts that God has given to you, probably the greatest gift that you have in your life, is your parents. Okay? God has gifted them to you to provide for you. Right? Are you the one that has to go to the store and, and pay for all the food? Are you the one that has to provide a, a home for yourself? No, it's your parents, right? But God has gifted them to you to provide and to protect you and to care for you and to show love to you. And so God recognizes that your parents are not perfect, right? Can you guys all agree with that? Are your parents perfect or not perfect? You don't have to answer that, okay? We all know your parents are not perfect. Okay, but, but even so, God still uses them to lead you. And he, leads, and he does that in order to protect you and to lead you to Himself. And we have this command repeated for us in the New Testament. Can you guys help me quote this? Ephesians 6.1 Children, say it with me, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And the next verse says, Honor your father and mother, for this is the first commandment with promise. And if you do well, you will live long and prosper. Okay, you will live long. You will have a long life. Do you, do you realize that one of the things that obeying your parents does for you is it protects you from dying early? Because your parents know what you need to do in order to protect your life. Now, some kids die before they become an adult. Hey, that's just the nature of living in the world that we live in. But in general, if you obey your parents, you will live longer than if you disobey them. So children, obey your parents and honor them. And one of the reasons for this, by the way, okay, you might, maybe you're going through all these things, I don't understand why my parents tell me to do something. I don't understand why they make me always clean my room. Okay, one of the reasons that God puts them in your life is so that you can learn to respect authority. Because I don't know if you've thought about this yet, but you will always have someone in authority over you. Do you realize that? Do you know that your dad and mom have people who are in authority over them? And they will till the day they die. Doesn't matter how old you are. Doesn't it's not that the grandpa they have nobody in authority over them, right? No, they have the government authority of them over them. If they're in a church, they have the leaders in the church in authority over them. Obviously, God is always our authority, right? So one of the great things that you're that God is teaching you through your parents is to respect your authority, because you will always in life have someone, your boss, whomever, that tells you to do something that you don't want to do, and if you can respect obey and honor them even when you don't want to. You will be much farther ahead. And I think you will live longer than you would have if you disobeyed. Alright, number six. The next three commands have to do with establishing a just and orderly society. Children, you can keep listening, okay? but this is not just for you now. Okay? This is for everybody. Number six, we must serve God by guarding the sanctity of life. You must guard the sanctity of life. You shall not murder. 
God says in verse 13. The idea is not to murder. God allows killing of people in certain situations. I hope you recognize that. Um, For example, He gives authority to the human government to take a person's life. Right? If a man sheds blood, by man shall his blood be shed. God gives the government that authority to do that. He also allows for unintentional killing. Right? But what this is talking about here is specific killing that has to do with premeditated malice, murder. God's saying don't do that ever. Um, Jesus taught in Matthew 5 that refraining from murder was not enough. He was showing the purpose of this command was not to be exhaustive, to talk about all forms of hatred. He was just saying that, that recognize that hatred actually comes from the heart. And so we have a responsibility not to murder, not to take away some, someone's life who is made in the image of God. Every human's is made in the image of God. Number seven, we must serve God by guarding the sanctity of marriage. Okay, so we guard the sanctity of life, number, number six, and then we guard the sanctity of marriage, number seven, verse 14. God is serious about marital fidelity. Do not commit adultery. It's not a minor sin to have a sexual relationship that breaches the marriage covenant. It's not something small. God takes up a whole commandment to... to to uh, keep us from doing that. And certainly this is not meant to be exhaustive of all kinds of sexual sins that God hates. And no, He only hates when you, when you breach a marriage covenant. No, He hates all immorality. This is just one example of it. And He's going to list more for Israel throughout Exodus and Leviticus. And so that's why we know that. But this is a basic one. Don't breach the marriage covenant. I hold that very dearly to myself and you will not breach that. Number eight, we must serve God by upholding the rights of personal property. Verse 15, we must uphold the rights of personal property. God promises and advances the rights to personal property. That means that we have no right to take something that belongs to someone else. Parents, you ought to teach your children this from a young age. Okay, When someone owns something, even in your own home, don't allow them to take it without some sort of consequence. The underlying problem comes many times because we desire to gain things dishonestly. Right? We want to get rich without working for it. And so here's a principle that God puts down and say, respect the property of other people and learn to seek honest gain. Number nine, we must serve God by speaking truthfully in all things. Verse 16, right? do not bear false witness. Again, this is directed primarily at giving false witness at a trial. So if you're going on trial... Don't bear false witness so that someone else become, you know, is seen as guilty even though they're not. That's the point that God was making to Israel. But the implication is, don't lie. Okay? Be truthful. If you're going to follow Me, then be truthful people. Number ten, serve God by being content. In most of the previous commands, you could actually, actually, someone could externally obey all of these commands. First nine, and yet still be far from God. Okay, because um, look at verse, look at the the tenth one, number seven, or verse seventeen. You shall not covet your neighbor. This has to do more with the heart, doesn't it? Someone could actually not kill someone, not commit adultery, not lie. They could actually not have idols. But and they could keep the Sabbath and so on. They could do that all externally, but then in their heart, they're coveting their neighbor's wife or their neighbor's possessions. And God's saying, listen, you see the expression of my law? It is more than just external behavior, isn't it? 
It's about the heart. So don't covet. Don't value something that God has not given you as if that's going to satisfy you above God. Okay, Because we constantly have this mindset that what God has given me is not enough, so I need something more. So I look at what they have and, wow, that, that's really something that I want. And God's saying, don't do that. And that's repeated for us in the New Testament, which means we need to obey it as well. Worshiping God happens when we obey God. That's what these commandments are about. Next, worshiping God is a fearful experience. In verses 18 through 21, after or, or while these Ten Commandments are given to Moses, it must have been some sight to see. Because you have all this thunder and the smoke and, and the loud noises and the bright flashes. Some people think that only Moses could understand God's voice and everybody else just heard the thunder. They couldn't interpret what was going on. But whatever the case, they are afraid, aren't they? They say, don't, don't let God speak to us in verse 19. Only you tell us, Moses. We can't handle God. He's just too powerful. And Moses' response is really amazing. He says, don't be afraid. And then look at the next slide. For God has come in order to test you and in order that you fear Him. Don't be afraid. God's done this so that, you fe- that you're afraid. Don't be afraid, but fear Him. He says both things. In other words, he's saying don't be afraid that God's just going to arbitrarily destroy you. Boom! You know? No, He made a covenant with you. He has committed Himself to you as a people. So don't have any unwarranted fear about God and that He's going to send you into bondage. No, recognize have a proper fear of God, a reverent fear for God, a proper respect for Him. That's what God wants. Because that proper respect and fear for what God could do to you is going to lead you to obedience. It's going to drive you away from disobedience. So if you are constantly like, I hope God doesn't do this to me. There is a... a, You know, we can't go too far with that. But in general, that's a good thing to have a healthy fear of God and what He will do. All the people stand at a distance as God comes to them in verse 21. And they stay at the base of the mountain. Moses goes up toward the mountain farther where God is. Let me leave you with an observation, a summary here as we, as we uh, conclude today. Okay, first an observation. Did you notice that eight of the ten commandments are in the form of a negative commandment? We live in a day that promotes the power of positive thinking and seeks to minimize all the negative, right? You don't really hand out awards. They don't even take score in Little League. You know, a lot of the Little League and T-ball now. Just everybody's a winner. So get rid of all the negative. But, but do you realize that Scripture holds up negative commands? And that eight of these commands, including the eight that are repeated in the New Testament, are negative commands. Don't do this. One of the, Christ, the criticisms of Christianity is that it's too restrictive. You know, it doesn't allow us to do all the things that other people can do. I don't want that. You know, if it's going to be that restrictive, I do not want that. But you know, restrictions are good in some cases. You know, what if a guy wanted to go on a roller coaster, but he didn't want the harness on him? You know, I, when I get up to the top of the hill, I want to be able to stand up if I want to. What are they saying to him? What would they say to him? You fool! 
This is for your benefit. We're, we're allowing you to enjoy this ride. And the harness is actually a restriction that's good for you, right? God is doing the same thing. God knows what will protect you. God knows what will keep you from destruction. Restrictions, in some cases, are good. And I would say that we are not equipped to protect ourselves from ourselves without proper restrictions. And so praise God that He lovingly considers our best interest and gives us restrictions. Restricts us from things that would not be helpful for us. God's restrictions are not like coming from the executioner's whip, but are more like a shepherd who lovingly pulls in his sheep close to him because he knows out there is danger. That's God for you. And so when people say that about you, don't let them, don't let them finish that statement. Oh, Christianity is so restrictive. Tell them why restrictions are good. And then a summary. Ten Commandments are designed to point people to God. We might think that God gave the Ten Commandments so that you know people could just be better people and you know we could just have a better society. But that's not actually what they're for primarily. They're, to, they're not to earn a right standing with God either. Now it is true in some sense that, that we get kind of ancillary benefits from obeying them. We do live long and prosper like I was telling the kids. But, but really, the Ten Commandments are to point us to God. The purpose of them and the entire law including the New Testament law, was to reveal God's nature to us and to point us to our need for a Redeemer. We can't do this on our own. So we need someone to stand in our place. It points us to God and how important He is for us. To be able to have a relationship with Him and to recognize that all of our obedience to Him is just a response of what He's already done. It doesn't earn us any standing before Him. We want to have a standing before God. It comes... Through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for uh, Your Word. and We're thankful for the expression of Your law that's shown for us in the Old Testament law. And it helps us to see uh, some application for us even in the law that we are under, the law of Christ. And so we pray that You'd help us to make proper application from these nine that are for us and to be able to follow You with love and with hope, knowing that You will bring about great, uh, great reward for those who will trust You. Lord, we want to be that kind of people. In Jesus' name, Amen.